Have you ever tried to track down a bad odor in your house or apartment? You ever done that? Okay, this happened to me this past week. Uh, I had just gotten back from the airport. I drove my daughter and son-in-law and two grandkids uh, to the airport. They're moving to England for three years, where my son-in-law, formerly, formerly known as Pastor Jameson, here at Christ Community Church, he's pursuing a PhD in theology there, and he had the nerve to kidnap my daughter and two grandkids, <laughs> take, take them with. In fact, Sue went with them. Fortunately, I get her back. Uh, she's just helping them set up house over the, uh, the first couple of weeks that they live there. But I walked back into my house, coming back from the airport, and it was a very empty, very quiet, very smelly house. There was some smell. I couldn't detect the source of it, so I started going from room to room doing the sniff test. You've done this. Okay, I, I went over to the laundry hamper where I'd thrown my dirty gym clothes and smelled that. I smelled my dog, wondering if she maybe rolled around in something in the backyard. I smelled the garbage under the kitchen sink to see if my daughter had thrown a baby diaper there. And I sniffed one thing. I opened the refrigerator, looked for any fuzzy food, leftovers at the back, nothing. And here's, here's the problem with trying to track down a bad odor. You got about five minutes in which to do it. You know why, right? Because in five minutes, what happens? You, you lose your sense of smelling that odor. You no longer smell it. Your nose adjusts. You know, I'm convinced this is why hog farmers can do what they do. <laughs> really, have you ever been driving across the northern part of Indiana and suddenly you get accosted by this horrendous smell and you realize you've just passed a hog farm and the first question in your mind is, how can people live around here? I'll tell you the answer, their noses adjust. Okay, they, they, they don't smell it anymore. Well, today I want to talk to you about another one of our five senses that has this same habit of, of making a kind of adjustment. Just as our noses adjust to unpleasant odors, so our eyes have a tendency to adjust to unpleasant sights. We stop seeing... Now listen to me, we stop seeing troubling images in our world that we used to see. Those images no longer bother us. We, we grow accustomed to them. But when we begin to follow Jesus, he gives us a fresh pair of eyes. When we begin to follow Jesus, he gives us a fresh pair of eyes. We begin to see things that we've been missing. We begin to see things like Jesus sees things. I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. Okay, Matthew chapter 9, first book in your New Testament. And I want to encourage you as a fall season begins that you bring a Bible with you to our weekend services because we're a people of the book and we mark it up as we study it together. So we're in the third week, the final week of a three-part series called Love Serves. Now, Pastor Clayton has preached the first two sermons in this series, and i got to say, while I was gone for a couple of months of summer study, about half the time we were in town, and so we would slip into the 11 o'clock service at the St. Charles campus, and uh, the other half of the, uh, of the time, even though I was out of town, I would watch the sermon I missed later in the week online. So I heard every summer every summer sermon, and I got to say, we were blessed with some incredible teaching from Pastor Clayton and the other guest speakers. Wouldn't you say, if you were here during the summer? And I'm not, you know, I'm not just saying it was good, it tickled my ears, I liked it, I was entertained. I'm saying it impacted my life. 
I walked away each week from the sermons I heard and said, wow, God has spoken to me about something. So thank you. Thank you, Clayton and, and others. Now, for the, the two weeks of the series that Pastor Clayton has preached, he's reminded us each time that our church has a mission. The mission of our church is to make passionate disciples of Jesus, to make devoted followers whose lives are marked by four characteristics. Number one, they belong. They belong to Jesus because they've surrendered their lives to him, but they also belong to Jesus' body, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. Jesus loves his church, and he wants you to love his church. That's what we're celebrating. This is belonging, homecoming weekend across our four campuses. Second characteristic of a devoted follower, a passionate disciple, is that they grow. Spiritually, they grow. Third, they serve, which is what this series is all about. And then finally, they reach. They reach out to their friends who don't yet know Christ. Well, well, today, as we conclude this serving series, we're going to focus on serving people outside the four walls of our church. Now, many of you, hundreds of you, already serve within the four walls of Christ Community Church. In fact, if you didn't do what you do, there would be no Christ Community Church. I deeply appreciate you. I say thank you to you, those of you who are serving as Kids World teachers and ushers and greeters and on Tuesday night and are caring ministries and as prayer warriors and as zone leaders. Now that we've got zones, those of you who have stepped up to that, there are a bazillion ministries here that you're serving in. You make Christ Community Church Christ Community Church. But, but today we're going to talk about serving people outside the four walls of our church, out in the community, in fact, around the world. But here's the deal. We won't see those serving opportunities if we don't have a fresh pair of eyes from Jesus with which to see them. We'll miss them completely. We won't step up to the plate because we won't see what's right in front of us, the desperate needs that we've grown accustomed to seeing. So we no longer see them. I want to read to you today's scripture. It's the closing paragraph of Matthew 9, begins at verse 35. Follow along as I read, and again, we'll be marking up our Bibles as we go. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw, if you got your own Bible, this is why you bring your own, so you could mark it up, circle saw, when he saw. Jesus saw, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus saw the crowds. There were four things about the crowds that Jesus saw. He wants to give us fresh eyes so we don't miss these things, so we see them too. Here's the first. If you haven't taken the outline out yet, you, you, you want to fill it in as we go. He wants us to see desperate needs. He wants us to see desperate needs. Verse 36 says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. Stop there. They were harassed and helpless. What does Matthew mean when he says the crowds were harassed and helpless? Well, well, this closing paragraph of Matthew 9 is actually a summary of everything Matthew's been describing since verse 1 of this chapter. 
So if you got your own Bible, turn back to verse 1 of chapter 9 of Matthew. It begins the first eight verses describe a paralyzed man who's brought to Jesus by his four friends. They bring him on a mat and lay him before Jesus. Now you try to imagine, imagine what it feels like to be a paralyzed man in the first century. No medical care, no motorized wheelchairs to get around in, no workman's comp, no insurance to pay the bills. Desperate, harassed and helpless. And then you drop down from that story down to verse 18. We read about a synagogue leader whose daughter has just died and he approaches Jesus and he wants to know, is there anything you can do? Can you bring my daughter back to life? Imagine, if you would, the heartbroken, grieving dad who's just lost his little girl. We're talking harassed and helpless. And so Jesus heads off with a synagogue leader to his house, and while they're headed there, he's accosted by somebody else. This time, verse 20, a woman who's had an internal bleeding problem for 12 years. And in that day, this was not only a medical problem, it was a social problem. Because in ancient Jewish culture, if, if you had a bleeding problem, then you were ritually unclean. People were to stay away from you. So she had been isolated. She had been all alone for a dozen years. We're talking harassed and helpless. You drop down to verse 27, Jesus goes on from there, and two blind men are following him, calling out, have mercy on us. Two blind guys, probably beggars, because there was no chance that they were going to find employment with that disability. And then a few verses beyond that, verse 32, another guy who's demon-possessed is brought to Jesus, and because he's demonized, he can't talk, he's mute. Imagine the psychological hell this guy has lived in. Harassed and helpless. Jesus saw the crowds. He saw these desperate needs. So he did something about it. Verse 35 that begins today's text says, he went from village to village to village, and one of the things he did, not only did he preach the kingdom of God, but he healed every disease and sickness. Do we want to be followers of Jesus? Well, it involves seeing desperate needs and then doing what we can to alleviate them. Seeing desperate needs. And I got to say, that's going to take a fresh pair of eyes because m most of us, we got suburban eyes, all right? See, what we see on a daily basis, we see acquisitions, stuff we want to possess. We see entertainment opportunities. We see all sorts of things, but we miss desperate needs. I was sitting in uh, one of my favorite cheapo restaurants the other day in the Geneva Commons. I, uh, sometimes when I want to study off campus, I'll throw some books into my backpack and I'll go over, have a bowl of soup there in a corner, quiet corner, and I'm sitting there eating my bowl of soup and reading a book and I look up and a, a gaggle of middle school girls walk in. There's six or seven of them, seventh, eighth graders, and they are dressed to the T. And each of them, clutching in one hand, they got numerous bags with the emblems of the stores where they've been shopping for more clothes. And in the other hand, they're each holding a foo-foo drink from Starbucks, which is just a couple of doors down. And now they're here to spend more money on themselves doing lunch together. And I thought to myself, this is like a snapshot of suburban materialism. But I didn't feel judgmental, honestly. I felt sad. 
I felt sad that our, our, our culture has taught these girls that this is the way to find happiness and significance and for your life to be full. And, and I wanted to wade right into the middle of them and tell them about Jesus and say, you know, Jesus can totally turn your value system upside down so you won't want to spend all your, your free time yeah, shopping, spending money on shopping. Now, now I am making a judgment because I have no idea that's how they spend all their free time. I'm sure most of them are supporting orphans in Haiti and volunteering at homeless shelters. But it, hey, I've got suburbanized too. I got suburbanized. This is why I so appreciate the ministries at Christ Community Church that open my eyes to desperate needs that I'd otherwise miss. I'm grateful for community impact ministries. I'm grateful for international impact ministries. Now, let me just say a word about those two categories, community impact ministries. We have about two dozen partners that we work with in the surrounding communities around our four campuses. We serve in jails, you know, where we're mentoring incarcerated men and women and youth. We serve in nursing homes. You know, in fact, I heard a story this past week, one of our Christ Community Church couples that serves on second Saturdays in a nursing home out in, in DeKalb, they came up with a great idea. And I heard it and I thought, this is, this is incredible. This is wonderful. They got the idea to sit down with every resident of that nursing home and listen to their life story and record it. And they're going to collect these stories together in a book and give a book to each resident in the nursing home. And I thought, what a way to communicate the love of God. What a way to say your life matters. So we serve in, in nursing homes. We serve low-income individuals who need, need legal help but can't afford it through our Administer Justice ministry. Did, did Administer Justice just this weekend at Christ Community. We serve in a variety of homeless shelters. We serve abused women in a crisis center. We serve destitute refugees, resettling them here in the United States. We serve unwed pregnant women who are making the courageous decision to give birth to their babies rather than, than to abort them. We serve at-risk kids in local, local schools. I mean, if, if you want to serve in any one of these ministries, and there are many more, I just gave you the tip of the iceberg. If you want to serve, you can do it individually. You could do it with the members of your community group on any day of the week. Or, or you could show up the second Saturday of any month and be put on a team for half a day. We'll have you home by lunch and you could go out and serve desperately needy people. Now, those are our community impact ministries. And then there are our international impact ministries. We call them GO teams. You know, we serve indigenous partners in, in half a dozen countries. A few more countries get thrown in whenever there is disaster relief needed someplace, like currently in Syria that's taking on, or rather in Greece, that's taking on all these Syrian refugees. We have about 24, 25 teams go out every year. There are 10 to 14 people on a team. If you do the math, there are about 300 people from Christ Community Church every year who give up vacation times to go on, on one of these 7 to 10 day trips and serve. And it's like serving on steroids. When you go, when you got, go on a go team trip, you bond with the other members of, of your group. 45% of the people who go on a go team trip are first timers. So if you've been dragging your heels, half the people are first-timers. 
I just uh, read a letter, a, a report written by a friend of mine who had come back from Greece, our latest trip to Greece this summer. She'd also gone to Greece back in February. She is in her mid-30s, a single woman, and she was just speaking effusively about what the experience had meant to her and what she was able to do. And I'm, I'm reading this. Over 200,000 Syrian refugees in Greece right now. They've lost everything. They've lost their homes. They've lost their businesses. They've lost their lives. And so she's over there ministering. And as I read her report, I thought to myself, God not only did something through you, sister, he did something in you. I mean, he restored to you the adventure that following Jesus ought to be. And by the way, as you walk out today at our four campuses, this is our third and final week of ministry fair. And if God's speaking to your heart right now and you're saying, I'd like to do something like that, I'd like to find out more about community impact or international impact ministries, we got tables in the lobbies of the four campuses, stop and find out more. Okay, number two, Jesus wants you to see desperate needs. Number two, he wants to give you fresh eyes so you, you see shepherdless sheep. Okay, when Jesus looked at the crowds, go back to our text, verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. Say the next line with me. Here we go. Like sheep without a shepherd. Like sheep without a shepherd. Now, this is a metaphor that most of us probably don't get because very few of us have ever herded sheep, right? How many of you have ever raised sheep? Oh, I do see a hand or so. Uh, other campuses, Adam Bartlett or Blackbird Creek and DeKalb, you raise corn, not sheep, but you know, there may be a, a sheep herder. Everything I know about raising sheep, I learned from a book, a bestseller. It sold over a million copies a number of years ago, written by a dude named Philip Keller. And Keller wrote this book called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. Now, even if you've not done much Bible reading, you may be familiar with the opening line of Psalm 23. It's famous. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in one. And, and Philip Keller realized most people don't get it you know, the Lord being the shepherd because they don't know anything about shepherding, but he's been a shepherd. He's owned and managed a, a sheep ranch for eight years, and so he wrote this book. And some of the things I learned, you know, biggest thing I learned is that sheep are incredibly vulnerable and absolutely stupid. And, and if they did not have a shepherd, they wouldn't survive. They gotta have a shepherd. Shepherd does a number of things, protects them from predators, wild dogs, cougars, and so on. A shepherd provides them with food. He leads them to green pastures. And that doesn't just happen. It means that he's got to go out into that pasture and remove rocks and tree stumps, and he's got to seed it with grass seed. And he's got to keep the sheep moving around so they don't eat the grass to the bare ground. A shepherd keeps the sheep from accosting each other because they're gnarly creatures and they get into it. They like to headbutt with each other and destroy each other. The shepherd sees that the sheep are constantly, insanely badgered by flies and ticks and whatever. And so he regularly dips them into a sort of repellent. A shepherd goes out on a regular basis looking for any cast sheep. A cast sheep is one who's wandered off, laid down on its back for a nap, and when it wakes up, it can't get back up. 
And I, you know, this, you know, the picture is, is kind of silly here of four hooves up in the air, but it's a, a really a serious deal because while it's lying there on its back, gases are building up in its room. And, and if it's a hot day and the shepherd doesn't find it in a matter of hours, it's dead. So, so sheep need shepherds, people. Every single person needs the good shepherd, needs Jesus. Jesus said about himself in John 10, verse 11, he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus, the good shepherd, laid down his life for his sheep. What does that mean? Why did Jesus lay down his life for us? Well, the prophet Isaiah tells us we're all like sheep who've gone astray. We, we all go, go our own way instead of God's way. And when we disconnect from God, who is the source of life, the penalty is death, eternal death. And so Jesus comes to planet earth as a good shepherd to save us from the predator death. He hurls himself in front of us. He takes the fangs of death himself, dying on the cross in our place, taking the death we deserve to die. And now offering to all who put their hope and trust in him, all who surrender their lives to him, all who say, I want you to become my shepherd, he offers forgiveness and eternal life. Have you ever surrendered your life to the good shepherd? Have you ever consciously, deliberately said, I want you to be my shepherd, Jesus? See, and once you do that, you not only get a new life on the inside, but you get a shepherd who every day of your life, he's leading you and guiding you and protecting you and providing for you. See, without Jesus, listen, without Jesus, people are sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus wants us to see that. He wants us to walk through our world and see shepherdless sheep, shepherdless sheep, shepherdless sheep. So when we go out to serve, when, when, when we get it that people have desperate needs and we begin to serve those needs through a community impact ministry or an international impact go team trip, we know the greatest need they have is a need for the good shepherd, a need for Jesus. And so while we're mentoring them and we're feeding them and we're providing clean water for them and we're offering medical help and we're visiting them in jails or in nursing homes, or we're looking for opportunities to point them to the Good Shepherd. By the way, one of the series we're going to do this fall, because every summer I put together the, uh, the series for the coming year, one of the series we're going to do is called From Small Talk to God Talk, How to Engage Others in Spiritual Conversation. Because ma many of you have told me, you know, that's the hardest part of, about sharing Jesus with others. How do you go from talking about the Cubs or the weather or, or my job to talking about Christ to talking about spiritual matters. So we're going to do a series on that because this is a big deal, pointing people to the, the good shepherd. Number three, Jesus wants us to see a ripened harvest. Ripened harvest. Go back to Matthew 9, look at verse 37. What's the next thing that Jesus sees in this crowd of people that he encounters? It says, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. Stop there. Jesus abruptly changes metaphors, and he turns on a dime. He goes from talking about shepherdless sheep to talking about ripened harvest. And once again, this is a word picture that probably many of us don't get because we're not farmers. Any farmers, any farmers out there? 
Okay, I know in DeKalb, come on, some of you are raising your hands out in DeKalb. We've got some farmers. I've got a good friend who's a farmer in Elburn. And uh, many times as fall harvest season comes along, he, he's extended an invitation. If you want to ride with me in the combine, get a feel for what it's like, come on out. And, and uh, I've never done it, partly because my fall is always so busy, but partly because I don't want to get in his way. I understand harvesting season is stressful. It's, it's stressful because once a crop has matured, once it's ripened, you got to get it in. In fact, if you don't harvest it on time, several bad things can happen. First of all, it can rot. A ripened harvest can rot if, it, rot if it's not brought in. A second thing that can happen is the weather can turn suddenly. And you go from sunny days to all of a sudden torrential downpours, and you can't get your machinery in these muddy fields anymore. Or they can throw off your whole schedule because you've got a schedule to keep. You've got to gather it, crate it, ship it to where it's got to go. And so harvesting is a big deal when the crop is ready to go. Got to be brought in. Friends, when Jesus tells his followers to see people as ripened harvest, what he's saying is look for those who are ready. Look for those who are ready to surrender their lives to me. They're spiritually ripe. If you see people who are spiritually ripe, bring them in. Harvest them now. Jesus uses this same ripe and harvest metaphor in John 4, verse 35, where he says to his 12 disciples, he says, don't you have a saying that it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Listen, every time we serve people who have desperate needs through one of those ministries that I've been describing, or for that matter, every time we're just caring, we're extending care to somebody at work or somebody in our, in our neighborhood, we're going to run into some who are ripe. Because of the stuff that's going on in their lives, they are ripe for a relationship with Christ and they're ready to be harvested. Now the question is, are, are we ready to do the harvesting? Are we ready to invite them to surrender their lives to Christ? You know, this past week I heard a cool story about a guy in our church named Larry who eight years ago, he went with the guys in his community group uh, to serve on a super second Saturday. Back then we called them great days of serving. And they went into a depressed community and as they were serving people, uh, Larry and his buds met a guy named, named Antonio. Antonio has led a very troubled life. In his youth, he was passed from foster home to foster home. He's had all sorts of illnesses, painful illnesses that have had him in and out of the hospital. He's slowly becoming blind. Not surprisingly, he's a bit resentful about all this and very skeptical about God. For the past eight years, Larry and his buds have been serving this guy, loving on him. When he's got to go someplace, somebody will drive him there. When he's in the hospital, the guys in Larry's group will go visit him. And so not too long ago, Antonio says, well, I think I'd like to go to Christ Community Church. This is after eight years of being shown the love of Christ. And so they bring Antonio, and unfortunately, it's a weekend where the topic doesn't relate at all. We're in a marriage series talking about divorce, and Antonio can't relate. So Larry's driving him home afterwards thinking, well, that was a bummer. 
But the conversation turns to God. And as they have the opportunity to talk about God, Larry senses this guy's ripe fruit. And he says to Antonio, Antonio, you want to put your trust in Christ? You want to surrender to Christ? And Antonio says, yes. And you could bet Larry is high-fiving the angels of heaven whom Scripture says rejoice whenever a lost person is found. Yeah. Now here's the deal. Here's the deal. Larry had to see ripe fruit, ripe fruit, ripe, ripe and harvest. Are our eyes open? Are we, are we walking around our, our, our school hallways or on the job in the neighborhood looking for ripe fruit that's ready to be harvested? You know, next weekend, we, we, we've got a wow weekend. We call wow weekends among our staff, we call them harvesting weekends. And you know that our guest is Nabil Qureshi, and you know the background of the story. He's just a, a brilliant, young, former Muslim who's come to faith in Jesus, written a New York Times bestseller called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. In fact, he's come out with another book since then on ISIS. I mean, these are hot topics in our world today. And you know that he's come down with stomach cancer, posted that on Facebook just a week and a half, two weeks ago and announced that he's canceling all speaking engagements. So we were on the phone with them. It became apparent that Nabil still wanted to do our wild weekend. He just trying to figure out a way to do it. And we said, Nabil, how about this? You tell us where to meet you, and we'll bring a camera crew there. And so this next week, he's flying from his home in Atlanta to start treatment at the Anderson Cancer Clinic in Houston. And on Tuesday... I'm flying to Houston with a team of five people coming along, camera crew, lighting guys, etc. And we're going to film this interview, and by God's grace, we're going to bring it to you next weekend. Now, the question is, who are you going to have with you? You know, what friend are you going to invite? And it's so easy when a wow weekend comes, you hear who the speaker is, and you write it off and say, yeah, I really don't know anybody who's interested in the story of a former Muslim. And I think, I think Jesus would push back and he would say to us the same thing he said to his disciples. Open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Come on, in your sphere of influence, there is somebody who's ripe for an opportunity like this to hear about Christ. All you got to do is perfectly find out who that is and invite him. And if you're thinking, and I have a suspicion some of us think this way, yeah, but if I invite a friend, I know how Pastor Jim ends these interviews. He's going to get up on the front of the stage, and he's going to ask people to surrender to Christ. And then those who surrender to Christ, he's going to say, hey, just stand up and sit back down as a sign that you're doing this, and I'm going to be so uncomfortable if my friend's sitting next to me. And I want to say to you, I know exactly how you feel because I feel that way too. I get that twinge of discomfort. You know, our last wild weekend in June when we had Matt Forte and Eric Rogis interviewed him and came to the... I was sitting in the St. Charles campus auditorium next to two friends I brought, and there is that moment, moment of discomfort. And friends, I'd say we got to get over it because unless people take this step of surrender, they remain unharvested. They remain shepherdless sheep. They remain having the unmet, desperate need of a Savior. And so, yeah, we're going to ask people, to put their hope, their trust in Christ. Bring somebody with you. 
Bring somebody with you. Ripened harvest. Number four, personal opportunities. That's what Jesus wants us to see. Take another look at Matthew chapter 9. We're going to pick it up again in verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. That's what we just read. But the workers are few. The workers are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Jesus says, I want more workers in my harvest field. And so he instructs his followers, he instructs you and me to do what? What are we supposed to do? Call it out. Four-letter word. What are we to do? Call it out. Pray. Pray. We're to ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers. What do you think we're doing tonight at 6 o'clock at Christ Community Church? We are praying for the harvest. I'm not inviting you. King Jesus is saying, if you follow me, come. I want you to pray. I want you to pray for our world. I want you to pray for our communities. I want you to pray for my church. I want you to pray for more workers to be raised up. I want, to pray for a bigger, want you to pray for a bigger harvest. I'm asking you on behalf of Jesus. I know some of you got to come a long ways. Those of you who are coming from DeKalb or coming from our Aurora campus, you're, you're going to have a half-hour drive to get here. I know some of you got young children, and I say bring them with you because we've made this prayer time as family-friendly as we possibly can. And if you say, well, no, I still need to get my kids in bed, then hire a babysitter so you can come tonight and pray because Jesus has said, pray that the Lord of the harvest would raise up workers. So we're going to do what Jesus told us to do. We're going to get together and we're going to pray. But now, let me warn you about something really dangerous when you begin to pray this prayer. You suddenly realize that you may be the initial answer to that prayer. You know, your prayer suddenly goes from, God, raise up workers for your harvest field, to uh, God, okay, I'll be one of those workers. Make me a harvester, God. You know, I have a feeling that's what a guy in our church named Gary was praying. Gary's a retired airline pilot, and on a uh, second Saturday, he agreed to lead a project team up at uh, the homeless shelter Wayside Cross in Elgin, where we serve. And so he led the project team, and he had such a good time doing it, he decided to start volunteering on a regular basis. He had some time, retired, and they looked at Gary, and after weeks of doing this, they said, you've got some really great organizational skills, bud. How about, uh, we don't have a director right now. Would you like to become the director of Wayside up in Elgin? And Gary said, okay, I'll do it. For three years, he's done this. He's brought organization. Now he's stepped down from that role, continues to serve in a volunteer capacity. But, but, but he said his goal was to give people a hand up, not a hand out. And so he developed all sorts of programs that would help people do that. So what is it about Gary, people like Gary, that motivate them to, to see desperate needs, to see shepherdless sheep, to see ripened harvest, and to say, oh, I also see a personal opportunity here. Th this opportunity has my name written all over it. What is the motivation behind doing everything we've been talking about doing in this sermon? I want to take you to the text one last time because there's a word I've kind of been glossing over, but I want to drill down into it for a moment because this may be the most important word in the closing paragraph of Matthew 9. It's the motivational word. 
It's the compelling reason that will prompt us to see eyes wide open, desperate needs, shepherdless sheep, ripen harvest, and conclude, aha, a personal opportunity. That motivational word is found in the middle of verse 36. It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Circle that word compassion in your Bible. Put a couple of exclamation points next to it. This is what causes people to see with fresh eyes. Compassion. Compassion. Uh, at the beginning of this past summer, as Sue and I started our, our summer study break, uh, we said, let's memorize a passage of Scripture together. Let's take a you know, good chunk of Scripture and commit it to memory. And so we decided on 1 John chapters 3 and 4, the entire chapters, so it'd be about a verse a day all through the summer. By the way, just an aside here. Uh, this fall, we're launching a new, brand new and improved Bible reading and Bible memory program we're going to be rolling out in a series called Bible Savvy, the weekend after our WOW weekend. And uh, we're going to start in the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to get people reading uh, the Bible and memorizing a verse or two every couple weeks. Uh, so I hope you'll be, be here for that. So Sue and I decided to memorize this huge chunk of, of Scripture, which we did over the summer, and we came to the end of the summer. But a week ago, we're taking a walk, and Sue says, okay, what was the most impacting verse that we memorized out of all the verses that we memorized? And I had an immediate answer for her because one of the verses I, I, I'd memorized, as soon as I'd memorized it, it had started troubling me. It is 1 John chapter 3, verse 17 which says, if anyone has material possessions, that's me, and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Okay, the, the Apostle John is saying, now he, he puts a negative spin on it. Let me state it positively. If you're a person who's been on the receiving end of the love of God, if you've put your trust in Jesus, you've surrendered to him, and you know the grace, you know the compassion of God, forgiving your sins, restoring you to a right relationship with him, giving you an eternal home and a new heaven and a new earth, if you've gotten all that compassion, you've marinated in the love of God, it can't help but spill out of your life into the lives of other people. That is the motivation behind seeing with new eyes, seeing desperate needs, shepherdless sheep, ripen harvest, and saying, I'll go, I'll serve. This is an opportunity for me because I've been so blessed by the love of God myself. 